Welcome to this episode of Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and today I am speaking to, I mean, this should feel like work because it's my job, but this is not work. This is my friend, PJ Gallagher. Thank you for joining me. You've got a mouthful of food. I was going to give you a chance to swallow your food, but I don't think there's any point. Sorry. Yeah. Gone. There you go. We've just Doesn't had matter. cake. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're having cake. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, rhubarb it's very is so good. much more to be des- you know, rhubarb is a very it's a surprise. It's like the secret weapon of fruit, I think. It's like the fruity version of celery. I'm not a huge fan to be honest, but that was couched in enough sugar and butter that I didn't really taste the rhubarb. And the coconut. Some things go together, you don't think they're gonna go together. Rhubarb and coconut. Yeah, well, rhubarb and coconut. I think Marks and Spencer's have a rhubarb and coconut yogurt, and if Marks and Spencer's are doing it, it's pretty mainstream. Okay, I'm new to this artisan cake business, so maybe it's a mainstream thing. But to me, it's a it's a very big surprise to me in my life. I think it's a, a remarkable. Well, you can continue to, me it's to like eat. Magic. Actually, in fact, I have <laughs> brought you some treats oh, to say thank you. So, for what? I didn't do anything. Well, you're about to. Oh God! I, this is Milka. It's called Happy Cow. Reminds yes, me of you. That's amazing stuff. Yes. Uh, here so good. are some Terry's oh, chocolate orange minis. I know you you're. You did a- get things. This. I couldn't get you your favourite blueberry No, it's thing. gone. It was limited edition. Turkish Delight! The great... Oh, gee, you're gone fucking mental. This no, can't. there you go. Because I'm, I'm giving you I chocolate. I feel like I'm bullying someone in the school ground and they're just giving me all their chocolate bars. Well, it's actually <laughs> that I'm about to bully you because I need you to talk about... You don't like comedy anymore, but we're going to talk about it. So I was like, Not if anymore. I, I don't think I ever really liked it. So why did you do it? I can't do fucking anything else. I mean, that was honestly always the way. I was never able to. Go, I was never able to do any. I was. I've been shite at ninety nine point nine percent of the things I've tried in my life. I've Give me five examples shy. of things you've tried. Okay, uh, anything to do with mathematics at all? Okay. Shite. <laughs> me too. That's fine. yeah. I really wanted to be um, involved in sport for a time in my life, but I catch balls with my face, so I couldn't be. A, I couldn't play for Dublin. I couldn't be a professional sports person. I love motorbike racing. It's the thing I love most in the world. Uh, and I was all right at it, but on the professional level, shite. Okay, but couldn't do it. Go on. So then, um, so what else did I do that was shite? Um, basically anything. But you've just tried like, like childhood dreams, like obviously being course, a professional footballer or professional motorbike cyclist. Okay, so well, I went into air conditioning. I tried air conditioning for a bit. I was shit at too it. Too hot, I, were you? No, too cold. Uh, to be honest with you, it was the gear I had to wear. I did, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I didn't like it. I was terrible at it. I kind of liked the mechanic and idea of things because of my interest in motors and stuff like that. Yeah. I can't use a spanner. Like my hands are literally ornaments. They're literally on the end of my arms, so they don't look weird. They're not real hands. They can't. They're not capable of anything. So it's terrible at that. So there's four. Uh, and I also really, really wanted to do something. Um, I was into real archaeology and stuff when I was in school. I loved, I loved the idea of being an archaeologist and stuff. But the simple idea that you had to learn by sitting in a classroom surrounded by other people and not being active and moving around, was it's, it's completely beyond me. I couldn't do it. So what the only thing that I really could do was make people laugh. Yeah, and I've always been so... Yeah, and I suppose it was seen as destructive for a long time in my life. And then all of a sudden... It wasn't, and I guess I. So I don't. I still don't value it. It just was something I could do. So the reason I wanted you to talk about this is because we had someone on once talking about if you want to get a book published, this is how you go about it. And yeah. a lot of my followers were like, "How would I get into making theatre or doing stand up?" Yes. So I was like, "We'll ask PJ." So there you are, and wow. you're thinking. I'm not you. My hands are ornaments. I I can't do anything. I hate myself. I hate my life. (laughs) Everyone hates me. Nobody wants me. Okay, that's a little bit harsh. (laughs) No, that's. I've heard you say these things before. (laughs) (laughs) You 
you you you can't accept love. No. No, it's a no. So you went into comedy then? So I went into comedy, I suppose. Yeah, if you're looking for ultimate rejection, I suppose you start being a performer. That's where rejection is. That's where the rejection lies in there somewhere, doesn't it's it? It's true. I think, so. like, all we do is we exist for that round of applause at the end that's like, I did good. Yeah. I'm, I am <laughs> I am worthy of love. Yeah, you're severely lacking in something, isn't it? You're asking strangers to like, you're asking strangers to turn up and like you en masse, but only at a distance. Don't be getting too close now and I'll be banging out the hugs and all that shit or oh, telling me things. I just I want you it. to stay at a distance and give me, make me feel like I belong in the world, if only for a minute. But there's someone in the audience whose literal job it is to criticise you publicly in the newspaper. So ban them. I don't let them in anymore. I don't mind Can critics. you do that? Yeah, of course you can. Just basically just say everybody has to pay and they will never pay. And that's the end of it. You don't get criticised anymore. You don't get critics in. Nice. No, but if, if you have to, if you make every pay, critics don't pay, they think they're too good to pay. Critics are the most useless people in the world, right? They literally add nothing to the process. Nothing at all. They add literally nothing. It's like, you know, there's all the analogies. They just walk around the battlefield shooting the wounded and all. But they're attacking people for for having a go, for making an effort. They literally add nothing. They're, like, in other words, the critique process is important. It's fucking absolutely the most unimportant part. If you're terrible, you get ignored. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Everybody, the person involved knows that something's not working long before Mr. Shit the Pants with his pen <laughs> sits in the front row and fucking tears your work to pieces. It doesn't happen in any other business. They add nothing. Absolutely nothing. A bad review is a worse thing than a good review because it means you're going to buy into their bullshit eventually. Bad like, reviews are, are bad reviews are, are like you get used to them. Good reviews is harder to get used to, and they're much more negatively impact you. I think. Well, I do agree because if you start believing the good reviews, you have to then start believing. Oh the bad yeah, reviews. and you all, and like it's easy to fall into it. You know, you start reading good reviews, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my god, I'm maybe cl- I am something special. Maybe this is maybe maybe you know. And then when it goes wrong, it's like, well, what did I do wrong? You didn't do anything wrong. The only thing you did wrong was believe the bad reviews or believe the good reviews. And then you got to go the other way. So, how long were you doing stand up before you got reviewed? How did you? Were oh, you just hanging outside God. the comedy? Do you remember your first stand up show? Like, how did you start? I, I do. Yeah, I was Jason. I see. I was doing sketch shows. I just sketch shows stand. Does that yeah. qualify as my first stand up show? Probably not. They're but like, how were you doing sketch shows? Did you just one day like what was the first thing? The first step you took that was the step on the career. Well, obviously, being shit at school, I left school early, so I left school at sixteen. Right. Uh, because everything I did in school was seen as just being... I was in, in the way, essentially. I was in the way. I was in everybody's way. I was in my own way. I was in the way of anyone that so wanted like, I'm just going to leave. I was in the teacher's way. Uh, so I left school. So I was 16. I was gone. Right. And I went uh, to... I, I knew I wanted to do something entertainment-based. I still don't really know what... I, well, I know what it is now. But it took me 40 years. But uh, so, I thought, so I knew I wanted to do something entertainment-based. And uh, I went in to work, do work experience in a warehouse called Light and Dimensions. Uh, right. It was in Long Lane, right opposite the Mead Hospital there. And like they just built lights that went into shows, you know, like fashion shows and gigs. Oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started doing that. And Jason Byrne worked there. And he was like, he always wanted to be a stand-up comedian. That was his thing. Yeah. And, and uh, was that just chance that you met him? Or did you know chance. he... No, oh, I'd cool. never met him before. It was just pure chance he was just working in there at the time. And uh, we became really good friends. And then... He always wanted to do stand-up, but, you know, starting is, ner- is nerve-wracking. He didn't really want to start on his own. And so he, were like, come on, we'll do this. He started booking me for gigs without even asking me. He just says, we're <laughs> going to do this thing. I was like, grand, okay, grand, we'll try it. But to me, I didn't know what stand-up was. To me, stand-up was cabaret. Like, it was a lad in a suit telling mother-in-law jokes. I didn't really, like, you know, I didn't yeah. know something like a, ma- <laughs> like a normal sort of lad going to work would do. It just didn't seem like it was that accessible. So where was the first gig? 
Uh, so Jason, he was he started gigging anyway for a while, and we I can't remember where it was, but it was in. I think it might have been the Ballantyre House, I think, many, many years ago. So like a bar situation. Yeah, at the coal, there was a band called the Coal Trains on. And, uh, Never heard of it. Yeah, they were <laughs> at Coal Trains and, they, we, and we were on first. Is, that, is there a pecking order? Is first the worst? Yeah, like I don't even, like it, and music and comedy are a notoriously bad mix. They don't mix, you know. Okay. Music and comedy just... Why, because people who are coming from music like ha- just... Yeah, it's like having a magician on before a stripper or something. It's like, it's just a really... Oh, it's so, it just feels more like it should work, but it, it, ne- it never does. Anyway, we went on and we did this gig and Jason did like a couple of minutes stand up on his own. And then we did these sketches, which you know, admittedly looking back were appalling, like, but it's 25 years ago. Can you remember happened. any of them? Yeah, we had this like self-defense with a piece of toast sketch. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, and Jason would be like, I was holding a piece of toast and Jason was doing all these like karate moves in front of it. As if it was like a kickboxing pad as it, or as something. It, yeah, as if it was like that. And then he just at the last second when he looked like he was going to would whip it out and get a saucer and scrape all the the burn pits off. Stop like it. it was, you know what I mean? Like it was real, like it was rough. Like it was <laughs> that rough sounds really stuff. bad. Like did they laugh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, like, I mean, nostalgia is a powerful thing. I don't know if they were laughing at us or with us, like, looking back. What age were you? 16? Oh, yeah, yeah, would have been 17, maybe. Oh, I'd say they were, like, maybe. they're adorable. Like, I remember I shouldn't have been in the pub, like, I was, you know. Yeah. <laughs> not that sort of shit. So, yeah, so it was like that. And then we started doing this show called Camping on the Moon, and it was all sketches and stuff, and that ended up being on every month in the comedy, se- uh, no, the Laughter Lounge. Okay. When it was still the old cinema style building many years mm-hmm. ago. And then that's where it sort of started. And before we knew it, Jason was getting really good and doing lots of gigs. And then he had an agent and it was like the funniest thing ever. Like, what are you getting an agent for? It's not like you're going to make a living doing this shit. We're just trying to be good at something. Like, But you're still working in the lighting place. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, we were all definitely, yeah, you were yeah. still working there. Yeah. Oh, like you had to do all kinds. Yeah. Like this went on for years, like years. And then I started doing my own stand up after. Did you sit down together and be like, oh, we'll we'll write these sketches now on our lunch break? Or how did you, what was the process like? Process was normally something like messing, talking and work, talking shit, thinking something was hilarious and saying, we should do this in front of people. (laughs) You know, literally the most, the worst way to write anything. And Uh, did you write it down then? No, we just talk it through and go, yeah, yeah, and we'll do this, and then we'll, ha, 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 you know, just silly shit. Like, that's why it wasn't, there was no real effort applied into it at the start. And then uh, we did the Camping on the Moon show, and then we did start, like, sort of spending time, you know, trying to write sketches. Yeah. And we did these sketches, and some of them were good, and some of them were brutal, and then some of them were kind of great fun, you know, uh, but it was a great launch pad for us all. But how did you find the actual writing process, considering that you hated oh, school? Yeah. Well, the writing pro- a writing pro- writing, I say writing, all this, writing for me isn't sitting down actually writing anything. What like, is it? I can't do that, I can't sit down and think really, so I had to, we have like... But you've done like hour-long comedy stand-up I shows. I know, but I can't sit down and write them, so uh, well, I'll stand up and just talk in a room, and I'll walk around the room, and I'll keep talking, and then I'll write a trigger note, maybe on a post-it, and I'll stick that to a wall, and then I'll do that like, I don't know, 160 times, and then I'll stick them all, and then I'll look at all the post-it notes, and I'll start rearranging them, and trying to find links between all I'm this random nonsense. imagining Rain Man here. Yeah, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll fill up the wall with them, and then I'll start stripping stuff back, and then I'll try uh, I'll try talking again, so I'll go, oh, that, and I'll try talking, and then, uh, you know, then maybe three days goes past, where you say, where you start losing your faith and wanting to be alive, because you've said nothing that you think is of any value, and then all of a sudden you get, oh, I've got five minutes, oh, I've got five minutes, and then go again and then it ends up being 
like uh, an hour show for me will end up being 15 words written on the back of my hand that I write in the back of my hand so it looks like I'm just checking the time. And I'm actually <laughs> just looking at a word which will give me the trigger for the, the, trigger next, for the next story. And that's so people say, can I have the script? It's like, it literally, it doesn't exist. I took a picture of postage stamps on the wall and I narrowed it down to 15 words and that those 15 words are now my hour show. But that's far more impressive than writing a script, learning it verbatim. And you're yeah. underselling yourself there, like. Well, I don't, well, I, I don't know if I am. Yeah. It's just the only way I know how to do it. Like, because if you put me in a room with all the pen and paper in the world and all the comforts in the world and all the best, like, I will literally give you a matchstick men and Mickey's on a page. You will get <laughs> nothing out of me. So it's, so but it's if I let you walk around and write on the walls, yeah, we'll get, get something show. like somewhere. Like it's a bit like a crazy person trying to keep the devil out, you know, like yeah. writing, you know, like a horror movie. But you'll get, I'll get, I'll like get something. Winona Ryder in Stranger Things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll get somewhere. Yeah, you walk in, the Christmas lights are everywhere, and there's like you know a Ouija board in the ground or whatever, and there's strange noises coming from the room. It's exactly like that. Yeah, and then you have a stand-up show, and then yeah, and then eventually, after like a months, many months of this, you have a stand-up show. And is Jason's process similar? Like, did you no. work well together? No, he no. Jason's very different process. That's why it was kind of, I suppose, that where our style of stand up is very similar. But he's a uh, he can write. Like, he can just sit down and write. Mm-hmm. I've always been very jealous of comedians like uh, Jason Bourne and Neil Delamere. Like Neil Delamere is just, it's like he, he's on, like he's like a slot machine for jokes. You can put money in his head and jokes fall it. Like he's incredible. He's just a brilliant joke writer, you know. And I've always been really jealous of lads that can do that. Because I can't really tell. I've never written, I don't think, a joke in my life. Like You're just very witty. Stuff like, has to happen and yeah. I'll tell you about it, you know. And then I'll tell a story and then I'll realise, oh, there's, there's a way of telling the story so people really understand what it was like to be in that moment at that time. You know, I have, I'm able to do that. But and I are you able to, like, pro, do you understand, like, in a logical sense, you can have some of your coffee while asking Thanks, a question. Oh, yeah, that's great, yeah. In a logical sense, like... This is the so this story happened and this is the best. If I leave out this bit, it's funnier. Like, do you do you know the tips and tricks that you have for writing, or does it just come naturally that you don't really understand it at all? I don't really understand it at all. A lot of times, I will do stuff I think is funny. I think I have a story. The most nerve wracking part of being a stand up comedian is the first time you present it to an audience because you've spent so much time, you're too involved in your own story. Mm-hmm. So, you, and you may have spent months, and you may only come out with. Six new minutes, you know, after, you know, after, after months of talking to yourself in a room. Like, so it's a, and do you give it to a live audience first or would you say to Jason or so, your friend, like, here, will you listen to this? Yeah, no, I don't think that works. I think the dynamic's different. I think it has to be to a live audience, audience. a small audience or whatever you want. But I think that's the only way to do it. So that's the most nerve wracking part because, and that's when you learn what you've got. So I, I've often written these things and I think, okay, there's something in it somewhere. I'm not sure where it is, but I know there's something in this. And then I'll stand and do it in front of an audience and literally everywhere I thought they would laugh, they don't. And then I might do something and or talk about something I thought was irrelevant to the story and you go, that's where it is. That's where it is. And you end up talking like, so, like for instance, I, I was trying to do stories about my dogs for for years, you know, yeah. and like, you know, they're like, you know, I can't, I just wasn't, wor- it wasn't working. It was just like, you know, people have dogs, everybody knows each other. And then I realized what the small shit about dogs that it was the stuff that's just was really repetitive. And I was like, what's funny about dogs is that they do the same things every day, the repetitive behavior. And then I ended up getting this really good routine out of it. But that wasn't where it was supposed to go. That wasn't the idea of it. Like, 
I don't know how it works. I don't know how stand-up works. I wish I could tell you I knew. But, but is I, it not like based on shared experience? So like, yeah. that's why people laugh like, God, yeah. that hand sanitizer really smell like really makes your hands sting. And people are like, oh yeah, I've had the same experience. Yes. Whereas if you tell an individual very specific story about your particular type of hand sanitizer, people are like, oh yeah. But if they haven't experienced it then. Yeah. It's not as funny. I think that, yeah, that, is, that absolutely is it. That's why sometimes you, that's why I couldn't do gags about living in, that's what, the madhouse, you know, growing up and all. I had that, I wrote this, I had to write, I'm, it's about adoption. You try, I can't do stand up about adoption. Because like that, you say something, you go, oh, you know the way, you know the, when you're, you know when you find out who your real ma is. <laughs> like, people don't know what that is. Like, immediately you put your audience on the back foot. They're like, I don't have any reference to this point. I don't. And then you've alienated your audience. So you're right, Jed. Yeah, there has to be shared circumstance for stand-up so then, to work. But you did make that story into a play, which yeah. was called Madhouse. Yeah, because it was on its own. So but did you sit down and write that? You had to, surely, because no. you had to give scripts to an actor. No, what? no, not really. I, that's why I couldn't do it on my own. So I did it with Una McEvitt. Mm-hmm. And Una McEvitt is, you know, she's a proper playwright. She's written loads of plays and stuff. But in, essentially, I did the, in, the stand-up process. Um, with the post-its and where, the... Madness. Yeah, where it was, except it was like having a stenographer in the room and stenographer and editor. So that's what it was. So I would stand in front of Una for, I don't know, a couple of hours and literally just talk utter shit about this one circumstance and try and create the timelines and stuff. And then she would just like go back and go, okay, this is, couldn't be possible because, you know, you've jumped from eight years old to 14 years old within 24 hours. That's not going to work in the show. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah okay, we've got to rethink it. You know, <laughs> and then... Uh, and she would edit all of that and then she would she it's really hard to find someone you work well with I think really mm-hmm. really hard and I just had to have a dynamic with doing it that she gets where I'm coming from and she can do everything I can't do so I can create five minute bits and six minute bits and ten minute bits and I can write those little bits of sketches in my head and I can practice them over and over again that she can write them down but she creates a narrative I'd never be able to create yeah 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 so, so. you like create the islands and she makes the bridges between I, them ah I wish I said it that way. Yeah, but that's you exactly didn't. what it is. Yes, yes. You, yeah. You would have come up with that if I'd given you an hour in a room with some, with some. If you get me six months and some post-it notes, I would have come up with what you came up with in the second. Yeah, I'm just eating the crumbs here in my uh, coconut slice. Um, so why did you then get away from comedy? Well, I never really enjoyed it. It just got dragged into it by Jason. No, really. Like, I mean, genuine. I really, really mean it. Like, it was so important to me to be able to find something. I felt I was good at. That was the, that's the only motivation I've ever had. I really needed badly to feel good at something. Like really did. Like I was terrible in school and you know, I get, you never feel like you belong anywhere. So that's difficult. And then when you realize, you know, you don't feel like, okay, maybe it's the adoption thing. It probably is. You know, you, you I mean, the first thing that happens to you when you're born, you're given yeah, some, you're put somewhere else. You know, you're yeah. like, So you're constantly trying to justify your place in the world. And then, you grow up not being very good at the stuff that is available to you. And uh, you don't feel like you're really wanted anywhere. You don't fit in anywhere. So you think, well, I better be good at something. Or else I'm just t- getting up in the world and taking a shit every day. Like, just, you know, I'm, I'm literally causing more harm than good. I need value. And I, I, I just want to be good at something. I don't, I don't think I would have cared what that was. I really don't think I would have cared what it was. As long as I could say I'm good at that. How is energy research influencing government policy? 180 Degrees is a podcast answering these questions by sharing the stories of people across Ireland working towards a cleaner energy future. 
they chat to people who are making a real difference in the areas of sustainable transport, energy in the home and in our communities. They hear how businesses and public sector bodies are cutting carbon emissions and how energy research is informing policy decisions. 180 Degrees is brought to you by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, supported by the Government of Ireland. You can listen to 180 Degrees, the podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. I want to tell you about another podcast that is on the Headstuff Podcast Network. So take a listen to this trailer and see what you think. Hello, Joe Rooney here. Back in 2015, I recorded my first Potter Rooney. And since then, I've been chatting to people that I meet throughout my travels here and there all over the world, including Sean Locke, Mary Coughlin, Frank Kelly, Joanne McAnally, Owen Colgan, Shazia Mertza, Aidan Gillen and Kocha Reardon. But loads of people you'd never heard of who have very interesting tales to tell including the sadly no longer with us Boston-based comedian Barry Crimmins, who led a crusade against images of child abuse on the internet, Tracy Carroll, whose daughter Willow has the highest grade of cerebral palsy, Drada Homeless Aid, Christine Volset, a Norwegian singer-documentary maker who ended up hanging out with the young lads in Nurse City Dublin and riding bareback on a horse through the city streets. All these very interesting tales to tell, and all you have to do is skip the first six minutes of me talking rubbish. That's Potteroni. So once you, like in your heart, believed I'm good I'm, at stand up, you were yeah. like, I'm done now. And yeah, and like, and I mean, and I did feel like I was really good at it. I do, I do feel I can do it very well. Like I, I do, I know I can. Like I know I was the stand up in rooms who would be nobody wanted to go on after. You know, because yeah, yeah. you were ripping the place to pieces, and I knew I was the guy that could <clears throat> go anywhere in storm festivals, and I knew I, you know, I got that was the buzz. I was like, "Holy shit, that's I can do that!" You know. And did you get everything you needed? Like, did you feel people wanted you? Did you feel loved and accepted? Like you had a place? Like you were good at something? All the things that you had been looking for, you got them. Uh, yeah, well, in the same way that drinking drugs does it for you, maybe yeah. Like you know, you do it. You get you go get high from it. You know, you get high from it. So you do like gigs and then you're, it blows you, oh, amazing. And then you think of another gig tomorrow and you're straight back to this. I'm going, I'm going to get found out tomorrow and this is going to be terrible. And why am I doing this to myself? But <laughs> what do you mean? Get, get <laughs> found out for what? But if you truly yeah. believed that you were good, then you weren't afraid of being found I, yeah, out. Yeah, I guess it's temporary. I suppose, I don't know, you're always doubting yourself. Like you guess you, when you're a walk off stage and everybody's cheering and you've ripped up, a, you know, you do a Vicar Street gig, say, and there's 1,100 people and it's sold out and... You know, they're and they're all on their feet, and you go, "That's amazing." You know, it's an amazing feeling. And I would leave venues straight away. I could, ne- I never hang around, just leave, just yeah. literally run out the back door, get into the car, and go home. And you'd feel amazing. But the next day, you kind of feel like, "Okay, I have to do it all over again to yeah, get that you're feeling back." Chasing that dragon, yeah, okay. I have to feel because I, I, I don't. When I wake up the next day, I just feel like. Okay, I did. You did a good gig. So what? You're still a shithead. So you need it you're again. Still, to you're feel still not going to. The next time you do, you'll never write another show. You wrote one good show. You'll never write another one. You you, you did a couple of good stories. You'll never do more. You know, you just feel like it's all going to end every minute. You know, you so feel why like you're going to let stop down. But yeah, I think that got to me. Like that got to me. You know, it's only so what and so what. And I'm getting older. And I also found radio. You know, I found going on the radio, and it's I love being on radio. It's everything stand up gives you, except it's. Half the pressure and none, none of the writing. And but you don't get the round of applause. You don't get the live interaction with the audience being like, PJ, you're great. Well, I suppose they can text in. No, but you, fee, you fee, yeah, they do text in. Yeah. yeah. WhatsApp. <laughs> WhatsApp's a powerful tool. 
why I feel better about myself because yeah. of what strangers WhatsApping me. Uh, yeah, well, there's well, this is it, and I suppose it feels more personal with the radio. You're, you know, you're, you see the same names over and over again, and you're working with people, and I suppose you judge more off the people you're working with. You don't work with anyone when you're a stand-up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah, just, it's just you, 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 and the road and. A venue and an empty dressing room. It's kind of depressing. I've d- I've toured one woman shows as well, and it seems yeah. At some point, you're like, oh, this is the dream, you know. I wanted to be an actor, and here I am touring my own show. But like the triangle sandwiches and the dressing room and the hotel, then in rural Longford, you're like, this. See, I never stayed in hotels. Oh well, yeah, ha- I had to when I was traveling to the next venue the next night. Like, oh, I still doing... never do that. Like if it's... I no, I like I never. I always went home. Oh god, always. But like then... if I was doing three nights in Galway, I would go home. Every night? Every fucking night. Your carbon footprint, PJ. I didn't give a shit, man. <laughs> I literally didn't give a shit. So, I was going home. End of story. It was too much to be, to be hanging around the town all day in a venue and it wasn't it. I would it always is a go lot. Home. Always go home. And it's really hard to avoid the people then who've been to the show who want to talk to you afterwards and that can be very anxiety yeah, driving. exactly. And there's no distraction the next day. All you yeah. do is think about the show you did and then the show you're going to do. You, like, No, it is. It's a lot. It's, it's a, like, and some people love it. Some people love it. Like you look at the likes of Carl Spain and you love all these people and you, you get very envious of them because you know they love it. They love the whole experience, you know. Tommy Tiernan loves the experience, I think. I think he loved, I remember listening to him doing an interview once uh, and you're saying how he loved life on the road and he loved staying in hotels and, you know, the crowd and the process and the whole lot. And I was like, just think, I, I like think I'd love to have that. I'd love to have that affection for it. Yeah. It but then I'm, a, I'm like, I'm a typical man as well. I only want things I can't have. Like as soon as you get something and you go, great, brilliant. I have some way in my head of devaluing it if I was able to get it. Why so, is that know, though? I don't know. That's not just a I man thing. That's you like... <laughs> Like, you just said Tommy Tiernan loves it. He's also a man. Okay, yeah, granted. I'm contradicting myself again. I don't I don't know is the honest answer. Does it, but it's a, it's something that happens. I will do something with complete and utter passion and drive and not stop and, and like, hunger for it so much. And, and then, no matter what it. it is, and then get it or achieve it. And then immediately, well, not immediately, but over a, you know, days. A, oh, yeah. Yeah, over a few days, there's a process of erosion where I now don't value <laughs> the experience anymore. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I wish I knew. I used to be always hiding all this shit as well. I think a couple of years ago, I just decided I'm just going to be honest about it, you know, because you, you do interviews and everybody's like, are you looking forward to your next show? And you're like, yes. What do you prefer? Acting or stand up? And you're like, fucking acting. But you say, oh, I don't know. I'm doing the tour now. I better say stand up. And I love it. And you're lying. Well, you're lying to yourself as much as everyone else. You're trying to talk yourself into doing these things. I don't know. I hit 40. I'm like, I don't, I'm not, I, I, no, I, I fucking don't like it. I mean, I'll have to do it again. And I'll, and, do you have to stand up again? I probably will. I'll have to eat. You know, uh, but, but uh, you have radio, don't you? I know I do, yeah. But then again, look, I'm probably going to get lose that job soon enough as well. So you just kind of so have to. Negative. I bet you don't even believe in COVID vaccines, do you? You're like they won't come. <laughs> I this is it. I had that chat yesterday. What did I you had say? I yesterday with my sister. Oh God, tell me, go on. <laughs> no, she was there going. Did you hear? There's a second vaccine, which is even more effective than the first one. And I went, Yeah, is it? Yeah, tell me where to get it. Yeah, I suppose we'll all have that in 25 fucking years, will we? No chance of it. Yeah, right. Wait, you see, the red tape is going to come out. We'll never see it. We'll never fucking see it. I went into one of those despair yeah, you're spirals. So, you're just so negative about everything. <laughs> and it's really like, we're very cranky close friends. But it's it's not cranky old man. It's like, it's like you refuse to let yourself feel hope. Like, just 
just kill your dreams. Like you just won't let yourself dream. Well, maybe it's an element of the Stockdale complex. You know, What's that? So you know the Stockdale complex is... Um, so a guy called Stockdale, an American soldier called Stockdale, he was locked up in Japan during World War II, I think. Mm-hmm. So the Japanese soldiers kept him. And uh, he, much like myself, made the assumption that he's never getting out of there. Yeah. So he had to get busy building a life within the camps. You know, Stockholm. Stockdale. Okay. Stock, so he writes, so, so, uh, and then um, all these other people in the camps, you know, they were like, we'll be out by Christmas. Okay. We just got to get to fucking Christmas and we'll be out. We'll get out. We'll, like, when Christmas comes, we'll get out. And then Christmas will come and Christmas will go. And then they will start going, well, look, another six months, come the summer, things are going to get hot. The Germans will be pushed back. You know, things will start to break. We'll be out by August. We will be out by August. Gotta have hope. Hope will set us free. And then August will come and go. And before they knew it, it was Christmas again. And then these people started, you know, dying. You know, their friends who had hope, they would see them die. And then they started to gradually lose hope. Whereas your man, Stockdale has a year of absolutely no hope and, you know, he's recovering. He's, you know, living his life. And then when he did get free, he reckoned, yeah, it was my lack of hope that got me through it. You know, uh, well, uh, so he reckons that, you know, hope, uh, like, you know, it's uh, like the Shawshank Redemption's a lovely movie and all. But in reality, you don't dig a tunnel out of your cell. In reality, <laughs> you sit in the fucking thing and maybe a miracle happens. <laughs> <laughs> or you dig your way out of your cell, you get caught, then you're back in again. But there is an algorithm, there is a, an equation, right? Which is that happiness is equal to expectations minus reality. So, minus, yo. so you, your expectations are high, reality is low, and you take one away from the other and you get how happy you are. So you have really low expectations. Yes. So you're happy. So then reality, if it's better than that, you'll be happy. But you still don't seem to be happy, even though you have low expectations. Almost, though. Almost happy. Almost, so close. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm very Cassie. close. Cassie. Cassie Felice. Felice. Like that show, that fucking weird show. So PJ's watching this show called Cassie Felice, which is uh, Spanish for almost happy. And it's basically about his life. Essentially, right? Like, it's so weird. I'm it sitting, is really I'm weird. sitting yeah. there in lockdown watching this thing. I'm trying to learn Spanish again. And then turn on this show called Cassie Feliz. And it's about a stand-up comedian who got into radio to get away from being sort of stand-up. Who got divorced in the exact same year that me and my missus broke up. And he's, uh, it, it's my life, like. I've Have got you two... seen the ending? Like, do you know how it goes? I do, yeah. How does it go? He stays more or less the same, you know. Then you get in, you know, almost. Are you happy with that? I'm, uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, I'm, yeah, I can look around and do, I can give out to myself because I don't have it bad, you know. Uh, like you know, I like, like you look around, and go. You've no reason to be miserable, you know. So, I, so most of the time, I'm not miserable. Most of the time, I am almost happy. I'm just like you know, uh, right. Like, what's that? That bridge analogy? Like I'm right, standing on the bridge between the two. You know what I mean? Because I know I don't really have the right to like stand up as much as I piss and moan and everything about it. Has been very, very, very good to me. Stand up got me to go and see the world and travel all around the world. Mm-hmm. Pay for all my holidays. It paid for me to race motorbikes for years, and I got to do all these things because of stand up. You know, so I love stand up for that. You know, but I love stand up for. Well, I'm not. I just don't like the process of it. I lo- you know, like I'd never go to a stand up show. I'd never dawned on me to go to a stand up show. I don't think I've ever been to a stand up show that I've I wasn't nev- on. I, I, I can't deal with stand up. I'm also I'm oppositional. So if you tell me come to my stand up show, I'll make you laugh. I'll sit there with my arms folded, being like, go on. I fucking dare you to make me laugh. You yeah. bet. I bet you won't. I've always wondered why people like you got to stand up. I don't. Go. There's always a couple. I don't go. Some people do. Some people go along and do. The, you've been to one at some stage, though, right? I I was at half of one at Edinburgh. <laughs> 
I hated Edinburgh. <laughs> I hate that place. Oh, same here, yeah. Yeah, no, that's horrendous. Yeah. Um, that's your tour of duty as a performer. That's your Vietnam right there. That's your Stockdale. I did it, 31 shows in 30 days. And if it didn't kill me. Yeah. That's an awful place to be. Um, meanwhile, David O'Doherty was next door killing it, you know? Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's so hard, right? Oh, it's so hard on people. I don't know how anyone. I don't know how anyone does a month in it. Like, but say if someone did want to go into stand up, what would you tell them to do? Oh, I would. Say, oh, no, I wouldn't say don't bother. If you if you want to do like it can be very it can be very rewarding if it's very did rewarding. You, but for social media wasn't a thing when you started. No, would you use it now as a tool? Not you personally, but would you recommend people use it as a tool? Because you see a lot of people like being very funny on Instagram. Like it could be a gateway into having a career, could it? Yeah, I mean, people do build careers off it. You know. They do. There's, there's, there is stand-ups out there that have made careers off it. People that do comedy and have, so why not? I mean, you got to use everything you have, I suppose. It's much harder now. Like for us, it was easier to get into it. There's no doubt about it because there was no stand-ups. Right. Like people didn't know what it was. Like people thought you were trying to be Sil Fox. <laughs> like, you know, but there was What's no, that? you know, Sil Fox, the stand-up, like no. cabaret comic from back in the day. Okay. So people thought you were trying to do the people didn't really get it or they just thought you were trying to be Billy Connolly. Like they, they people knew Billy Connolly and no other stand-ups. Yeah. You know, or maybe some 80s guys, like, you know, Cannonball and stuff like that. And there was only like, I think there was only, we were going through them just recently. I think there was like 12 or something full-time stand-ups. Like now there's hundreds, like literally hundreds. And you could go into town and get stage time at the drop of a hat. Like he just went up to the international and says, can I go on next week? And they said, yes. And though all that's gone. So I guess you do have to use what's available to you now. You know, it is harder to get into. But then I, I think one thing our sort of older generation had was that if you were shite you got found it very quick and you never did it again okay <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean that's the end of you like and yeah like we weren't raised being told we could do anything we wanted and follow your dreams you know we were raised in get fucking real you know uh, so I think there was an element of so if you did something and you were terrible at it you, no matter how much you wanted it you moved on with your life you like know? your career in football and your motorcycle career yeah exactly like, conditioning. exactly like that Right. Whereas now, I if think you'd been a millennial, you would be a footballer right now. <laughs> you would still be trying. <laughs> yeah, you would have not. I quit. would. Yeah, I'd be there. I'm going to be the first 45 year old professional goalkeeper for Manchester United. I'd be deluded, you know, because you haven't read because you were because of your age, you hadn't read the secret. You hadn't been told that the universe has your back. You yeah. hadn't been told Never. to manifest. Quite things. the opposite. I was told, <laughs> listen, there's nothing for you to do. Like you have to just pick something and do it. You know. Like, that was the stuff, like, being in school and remember being told, if you don't learn French, you'll never escape this country. Like, you know, <laughs> that stuff like that. It was very different. Like, there was no follow your dreams. It was like, get over your dreams was something, you know. Your dreams is like your bank account. They're not nearly as, like, it hasn't got half the the, the promise you think it does, you know. Like, you gotta, gotta hold on to them, maybe, and but, you know, spend them around a bit, you know. You're not gonna, <laughs> there's no compound interest. It's not gonna work, Uh but you've really metabolised that lesson. You're really like, right, dreams are nothing. So I just better not have any. <laughs> it's literally you. I listened to your podcast. You're my friend. What is wrong with no, you? No, no, I just hit me shit off the table laughing. <laughs> See, you can't even laugh without getting hurt. Yeah. Fuck this. You can't even experience joy without hurting yourself. <laughs> you're you're just, uh, you're, in a, you're an enigma. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm making, I feel like I'm, I'm coming across a lot more miserable than I actually am. I don't know. I think it's tracking well with reality. <laughs> 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 From knowing you. Yeah, I don't know. How are you uh, finding the lockdown? Uh, yeah, it's like, 
it's uh, I, I mean this is now this is one of those moments where I remind myself how spoiled I am like, yeah. I have the privilege of boredom I'm yeah. bored all the time and that is as good as it gets I think you know what I mean people are really struggling like really really struggling like people have like some of the stand-ups I know for instance who are making really good careers are great, making loads of money you know good oh, money cancelled and then it's now they're like they just don't there's nothing. They haven't worked in months. They can't pay the mortgages or car loans. Those bills don't go away. You know, they've mm-hmm. got kids and they don't know what, to, they literally don't know what to do with themselves. And I'm not that, you know. So, I, so I'm bored. I'm bored. And I, I honestly don't go a day without thinking, thank fuck you're just bored. Like, you yeah. know, like I'm very lucky to be bored. I'm very lucky that it's just like walking till my feet get hurt with the dogs. Like, that's all right, you know. Uh, but it's the same as everyone at the start. I was panicking. Yeah. Yeah, of course I panicked. I thought the world was going to end. Like, you know, I was in zombie apocalypse. I know, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. So <laughs> you I, dragged me into it with you for a while. Geez, yeah, I dragged you down. Yeah. I see, I'm not a good friend. Uh, you you are down. a great friend. Go on. <laughs> so, You'll never miss an opportunity to put yourself down, PJ. If you read back to our so, text messages, it's like, thanks, you're a great friend. I'm not, though. I'm going to let you down. I'm a terrible friend. Yeah. Like, good night. I'm not, I'm yeah. not getting into this. No, wait, I'll show you whether I am or not. Deprecate all over me every day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So uh, yeah, so I'm all right. Yeah, honestly, lockdown was has been uh, was very very tough at the start and getting used to things and all of that. But I think you know, no, uh, I think things are all right now. Now yeah. I just want to run away when it's all over. You know, do all that sort of stuff. You know, now I'm now my new my new like sorry. What's your dream? Here's my new dream. Wait till I get fired, right? <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> are you they... making active moves that might help them to fire you? No, no, okay. no. I love my job. I do. I love my job. It's just you think it's uh, going to come because you're apocalyptic. Yeah. Okay. Cool. You know, something will happen. Then we'll it all, always you know, does. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say something, or you know, it's very easy to get in trouble, or whatever. I don't know. Something will happen anyway. Nothing lasts forever, and all of that. You know, most Murphy's law and everything. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so wait till I get fired, mm-hmm. and then run away and live in Spain. I'm actually practicing the language so I can communicate with the locals already. <laughs> You're where in Spain? I don't care. I'm retiring somewhere where I just don't have to see people who will know my stupid face. I've told you this already. So. You're going to end up in Spain sitting next to a man from Norwich <laughs> in some benighted pub outside Benidorm <laughs> thinking no. that you're in Cassie Felice. <laughs> oh. And then you'll be texting complaining about that guy. Nicholas, we'll call him. Yeah, well, I suppose, isn't it the truth that something like that will happen? Like, no matter where you go, there you are and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. I know, that's, you know, but this is the plan. I need a plan. Uh, and this is the plan. At the moment, this is the plan. You know what I mean? Because I have to have a fallout shelter. That's what it is. You know, you need a nuclear fallout shelter. You know, so uh, who, who knows what will actually happen? But in the event that the nuclear fallout happens, you know, then, Are you talking about actual nuclear war? No, no, no. I'm just talking, you know, the your, end of your, days, your own like, personal end of days. Like, you know, you're, you're not working anymore and whatever else. In Paris. So, <laughs> you know, so that's it. Retirement is actually quite something that people enjoy, you know. You could retire early. Walk the dogs. Yeah. I'd get a that, COVID though. vaccine, travel all around. You'd love I'd that. Love but that. you've just said your biggest fear is that they're going to fire you. Oh, yeah, but I can't retire. Like, I have to work for a lot more years to be able to afford what you're talking about. Uh, do you? Ah, uh, yeah. How much do you need to live on? I don't know. That's a question I ask. Do you know how many people have asked that question to? Like, this is like... this Like is financial a, advisors? Y- y- like, yeah. But well, just people that seem to know what they're talking about when it comes to money. Ask Owen McGee and all, you know. Yeah. In the off chance you meet these people. I'm always like, one of my first questions is, how much? How much is life, right? You're 45. 
But you do realise that like... You're 45. How much is life? How much is comfortable life? Well, you've walked in here with two artisan cakes and like your life could definitely be and your little Kenzo gear. I'm actually wearing the balls jumper today. Oh, you're today. wearing a free balls jumper today. <laughs> you could definitely have a cheaper life than you actually have if you wanted. I think you, you could live on 30 grand a year. After tax, like? Uh, no... I don't understand tax. Um, thir- yeah, thirty, like 30 grand, grand after tax. The hand, like yeah, thirty, uh, thirty illicitly begotten thir- t- thousands, like, like piles of money in front of you that equal thirty thousand euro. You'd be able to get through. Yeah, I think I could. Yeah, I think I would take. I would take that on as a challenge. Yeah, yeah, I think I could. Yeah, but then that that's like that doesn't allow for, you know, money for your heart attack or money for your. How much is your heart attack? Burgling recovery. When's your, your heart attack scheduled for? I don't I haven't scheduled that in at all yet. This is the first I've mentioned, thought of it. Uh, okay, but do you have health insurance? <laughs> I do, yeah. You could put 30, you could use some of the 30 grand for health insurance. Then if you had the heart attack, you could go into the Matter Private Cardiac Clinic. <laughs> this is not an ad. But you go in there and have that heart attack over there. Isn't this amazing that we sat down here and it was like how to ta- tell people to get in stand-up what the benefits of being a stand-up Oh sorry PJ anyone who's later. listening to this is not getting into stand-up anymore. <laughs> They're like absolutely no way. It sounds horrific. <laughs> so now we're just telling I'm sorry <laughs> You've killed their dreams I, like. I'm sorry I didn't mean to kill your dreams I didn't mean to kill your dreams Maybe they should have been killed uh, But I didn't mean to do that uh, Yeah Yeah yeah. <laughs> now I'm now what we've gotten from How do you get into stand-up To planning a heart attack You know what I mean So it's It's been That was a pretty steady drop There It was But it was inevitable it's, really It was a pretty steady drop Yeah God almighty that, Yeah the target was not hit at all Um well, I suppose f- finish up there so and tell them how to get into stand up. I don't know how to get. I, I, okay, I get. I mean, mentor someone. You'd hate that. I wouldn't be good at it. I mean, like I, I would try. I have tried to help people in the past, but it's very. But it is such a solo thing yeah, to journey try. That you're on. Like, you really are on your own. Like, I mean, that's the thing. I think the only advice you can really give someone is genuinely don't be afraid to be shit. People are very afraid to be shit. Mm-hmm. Really afraid. But you, it's all right, like, like I will. I definitely remember my first few stand-up shows on my own, and the terror I went through, and all of that stuff, you know, about getting on stage and <clears throat> showing my hand, you know, stuff I had thought of in my head and put myself out there, and the lack of confidence I had in it, and then the worst happening, you know, people not nobody laughed, and it went going horrendously bad. But earlier on, you said if that, nobody laughed, then you were gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I didn't. Well, yeah, I mean, that got worse. To be honest, that got worse as things got successful too. Like stand-up, don't forget, at the start was me and Jason trying to make a few quid and just trying to feel good at something. And yeah. it wasn't very serious. And then it became... Something different when gradually it was, like I was life. Like. Gradually I was hanging my whole life on this thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. <laughs> Did you have agents at that point then? And No, well, but it was in the post. It was in the post, you know. Like I'd done 10 years of stand-up and just kind of threw my hat at it. Mm-hmm. And then I got... A chance, you like know. At what point did you leave the lighting place and go like, I'm just going to do stand-up with no other career? Oh, God. Not long after Jason. I'd say about a year after Jason. Uh, and it immediately was a disaster. So I was doing gigs, but not making nearly enough money to like... Live. To live. So then you had to, I had to do so many other jobs. Like I was a motorbike courier for a while and I worked in that air conditioning place you know yeah. I worked in a chemical plant in Tipperary which was the grimmest point in my life I think 
Like, I don't even know where, I can't even remember the name of the town. Isn't that amazing that we can block this shit out? Like, I was working in this. That's uh, called PTSD. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> yeah. So, and like, so I was doing that and all the time trying. So I would, uh, the Modern Bike Courier stuff was great because I could, you know, work for three weeks and then do a week's worth of gigs and then yeah. just come back and then do it again and come back and do it again, you know. Like, pre-email, like, you know, when couriers were really necessary. It was the quickest way you could get something to someone who was on a motorcycle. Uh, you know, so that was... That that was like what, what was the question again? I'm I'm after oh my god I went into total post traumatic stress there thinking no, about it all. Just, oh, oh yeah, so when did you when did you go all in? So that was it, it was a gradual process from there, and I think then after ten years of that, um, of working, trying, not getting anywhere, feeling I was very good at it, mm-hmm. but it not working, mm-hmm. and never to be feeling like I was failing at the one thing I was good at, <laughs> you know. Uh, then it was I got a, I had planned to go around Europe on my bike and sort of reassess my life and all this sort of stuff. And that's when I got the call for Naked Camera, and I said no, and went off on my trip, and then came back and realised, okay, now I'm really broke. I was broke before I left, and then that was the chance to get going as a full timer. Like, mm-hmm. so it was ten years. Like, did you ring them back and go actually? Yeah, yeah, I rang. I, yeah, I got back home <laughs> and realised like. I, like I couldn't buy a sandwich you know so I was like are you still looking for people and that week they were like so I was very lucky uh, Dave McSavage was doing it and he had backed out Yeah. and a couple of lads that were involved in it had left to go and do a show at the West End so the whole time it was gone it was happening but then everybody bailed so just luck, luck. you know just very good timing and I'm that very is lucky. part of it I've always been very very lucky like I'm very very lucky poxy in a way poxy yeah poxy yeah because yeah. your luck is different you're just kind of poxed yeah, so but maybe there's a quota of bad luck and being like, you know, like given away at birth and all that madhouse stuff. Maybe you've had your quota of bad luck and now like the world has your back and you can go and do anything and you can be in Benidorm with Nicholas for as long as you want and it'll all be grand. But you still don't believe that it'll be grand because you are programmed constitutionally to believe <laughs> that everything is terrible. <laughs> But then there's great stand up in all of that because when you do find like you know a lot of the stand up I've done has always been. About how miserable you are. Uh, but about like how things just ha- have an amazing ability to go wrong at the last minute or how they have the amazing ability to work out when you least expect it, you know. Wouldn't that be a terrible waste of luck if I did use up my quote of bad luck and then I did spend my good lucky days sitting with fucking Nicholas from Norwich in Benidorm? <laughs> yeah, but you seem to think you'd be happy out there. Cassie Felice, you know? Yeah, I, don't, I have a different image in my head than Nicholas and Benidorm, <laughs> though, you know. Well, we're going to have to wait and see how it actually pans uh, out. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. So like, st- but stand up is definitely a great thing to do. Like, it is a great thing to do. He says and now at the end after it, no, shitting great... on it for forty five minutes. Yeah, well, I know, but I owe it so much. Like, I do. Like, all the good things I've had in my life come back to stand up. All you know, it's paid for them all, and it's all. Uh, the hours are amazing. You know, like, you work one hour a day. <laughs> you know, you do a lot of driving. You spend a lot of time on your own. Um, but it, it but it's, it, it does pay off. And I, I ultimately, you're, okay. Here's the truth. Ultimately, I'm here. I'm here talking to you. Yeah, you know. Ultimately, I'm, I'm in the job I'm in that I love now because of stand up. Mm-hmm. I race motorcycles for years because of stand up. I saw the work because of stand up. I love, you know, so so many good, amazing things have come out of stand up. So you wouldn't put people off it. So I wouldn't change anything. I guess that's it. I, I'm sitting there now. Wouldn't change anything. It worked out. It's all okay. Like you know what I mean. As much of a grumbly fucking little crank that I am at the moment, underneath it all, somewhere somehow, even though I try and convince myself on the daily that everything's fucked, I kind of know it's all okay. You know, I did all right. I have that feeling. I know I did all right. That's good. That that was what was I. That's what I was after at the start. And yeah. I, that's that box has been ticked. 
So if you really do feel like you need to do stand-up, <laughs> then you do need to do stand-up. Go to your local club and book it, even if they say it's six months from now. All you need is five minutes. This is the main thing about doing stand-up. If you're going to do stand-up, don't look at someone doing an hour, an hour-long show and think, I have to write an hour of stand-up. You don't. You need five minutes. You need five minutes. And even the best stand-ups can write. Sometimes it takes them six months to write five good minutes. So how don't long, worry about it. How many times should people laugh in those five minutes? Once is enough. Right. One good gag. One gag where you have them. If you can't be funny. If you can't be funny, be interesting. Yeah. You know, just hold their attention. Don't expect to be amazing. Just hold their attention. Make them laugh once. Do five minutes. And if you do that, you're on your way. When you do that for the first gig you do is the hardest gig you will ever do in your life. And once it's over, it's over. You're a stand-up then. Keep doing it. Just keep fucking doing it. Repetition is everything. Like, you learn so much by just being on your feet. No one can give you that advice. And don't take any advice from anyone who hasn't walked the 15 feet from the wings to the microphone. They don't know what they're fucking talking about. Don't respect their opinion. Critics are a nuisance. They cannot help you. Just walk out, do it. Five minutes. Just think you had five minutes. Now, it might be hard for people during these COVID times because I'm sure the clubs and all aren't running, but work on your five minutes now. And then when they open up, you're going to have loads of You're going to be amazing. You're going to be amazing. PJ Gallagher, thank you very much. I'll let you go now and eat your, the rest of your cake and your chocolate. You gave me so much stuff. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think I've given you type 2 diabetes, but that's <laughs> that's that's for another day. I, I was all, I've been waiting for a diabetes all my life. I bet you have. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Basically. As ever, if you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with someone that really helps to increase listenership or you could rate it or review it wherever you're listening to it. I don't think you can rate or review on Spotify, but, you know, tell someone on social media about it. Uh, our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahlo Gar. And as ever, we are produced by the Headstuff Podcast Networks at the Podcast Studios. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. 